Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back while we inject weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Carla Ravoglio and on this edition of Diffusion, we'll take a look at the exciting and infinitely growing field of evolution. Next year, the year 2009, will mark the 200th birthday of the father of evolution, Charles Darwin, and was also 150 years since the publication of his seminal book, On the Origin of Species. With such important anniversaries coming up, it seems timely to take a look at some of the research going on in the field of evolution, and to revisit some of the controversies surrounding evolution and the scientific method that took place recently in the United States. We're joined this evening by two scholars of evolution, Jesse Silverman, a molecular evolutionary biologist from Duke University in the States, and Alex Jordan from the Evolution and Ecology Centre at the University of New South Wales. Coming up in the program, you'll be hearing from Jesse and Alex, who'll be revealing whether organisms on Earth can evolve fast enough to cope with our rapidly changing climate. And taking you to America, the heartland of the creation-evolution debate, and revisiting this well-documented assault on the scientific method. But first up, here's Jesse, reporting on the latest news to come from the Evolution Laboratories. <laughs> Meteors responsible for new life? Sven Stooge and Dave Harper at the Natural History Museum of Denmark at the University of Copenhagen, together with colleagues from Lund University, Sweden, discovered that new and diverse life can arise following meteor impacts. The group examined an event in the Ordovician period, 440 to 490 million years ago, when over 100 meteorites struck the Earth at the same time. In the region they studied, the ancient Baltic Sea, they found that after the initial devastation of the impacts, that there was a rapid increase in diversity in terms of the evolution of new marine species, particularly shellfish. In the future, they hope to do similar research in southern China and the U.S. to examine if increased diversity after meteor impacts is a global phenomenon. Their findings were published in the British journal Nature Geosciences. Was there a dwarf species of human? The discovery of the bones of little people that had lived on the Indonesian island of Flores until 13,000 years ago have been claimed to be sufficiently distinct to warrant a designation as a separate species. A new report of additional bones of unusually small people found on another Pacific island in May call into question claims that the bones on Flores are actually a new species. In the online journal PLOS One, Dr. Lieberger and colleagues from Duke University and Rutgers University discussed their findings of bones of modern humans that were about four feet tall on the island of Palau. While the new finds share a lot of features with the bones on Flores, they appear to have a larger brain case. According to the scientists, the new findings hint that there is at least the possibility that the Flores hominids are simply an island-adapted population of Homo sapiens, perhaps with some individuals expressing congenital abnormalities. Ancient Monster of the Sea a 150-million-year-old monster of the sea, discovered in the summer of 2006 in the Norwegian archipelago of Svalbard, is the largest pliosaur ever found at a length of approximately 15 meters. The nearly complete skeleton was excavated in the summer of 2007 by paleontologist Jorn Hurum 
of the University of Oslo's Natural History Museum. Pliosaurs were a group of marine reptiles that averaged about 6 meters in length. They had short necks and tear-shaped bodies. This example is significant in that it is the largest and one of the most complete pliosaurs ever found and also shows that they lived in the northern seas. Through examination of the teeth of the pliosaur, researchers were also able to determine that its teeth were designed for bone crushing. Evidence from studies on T-Rex have shown that the round cross-section is ideal for crushing bones, leading Herm to speculate that the giant pliosaur ate smaller marine reptiles and large fish. Convergent evolution of a gene in monkeys that blocks AIDS-like viruses. Researchers at Harvard have discovered a gene in Asian macaques that may have evolved as a defense against lentiviruses, of which HIV is one. The findings suggest that the AIDS epidemic is not a new event and that lentiviruses have affected primate species for a long time. The gene that was discovered is a hybrid of two existing cellular genes that form a single gene to produce a protein that is capable of blocking infection by lentiviruses. Extraordinarily, the same two genes were found to have hybridized into a gene of similar function as South American owl monkeys. Molecular and evolutionary studies revealed that the gene had evolved independently in the two species. When an event like this occurs, it is called convergent evolution and indicates that this combination of genes is highly beneficial to individuals that have it. The low likelihood of this type of mutation happening twice also shows that AIDS-like epidemics have plagued our ancestors long before modern humans. This research was published in PLOS Pathogens. Giants of Antarctica Scientists studying the raw sea in New Zealand's Antarctic waters were surprised by the size of some of the specimens found. The study of the raw sea was the most comprehensive to date and is part of the International Polar Year Program involving 23 countries and 11 voyages to survey marine life and habitats around Antarctica. During the 3,000-kilometer voyage, they found such surprising giants as a jellyfish with 12-foot tentacles, huge sea snails, and two-foot-wide starfish. Over 30,000 samples were taken, and hundreds of them may be new species, including at least eight new mollusks. In addition to new species, spectacular finds such as fields of sea lilies that stretch for hundreds of meters across the ocean floor were discovered. It is speculated that the enormous size of some of the animals found may be due to high levels of oxygen in the water and the longevity of organisms in these types of habitats. And that was Jesse Silverman with the latest news from the evolution camp. Climate change seems to be the catchphrase of the day. It seems that global warming has replaced world hunger as a major calamity facing our planet. But what does climate change mean for the plants and animals living on Earth? Who will be the winners and the losers in the wake of rising temperatures and altered weather patterns? And can we even predict this? Jesse Silverman spoke to a researcher in the field of thermal biology to discern the ability of organisms to adapt to temperature changes in their environment. I have the pleasure of speaking with Frank Seabacher, an associate professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Sydney. His research group studies evolutionary and ecological physiology and has been published on over 40 academic papers. 
His current work focuses on responses of animals to changing environments and how these responses have evolved in space and time. He has worked with many organisms, from crocodiles to crayfish and many things in between. Today we will discuss thermoregulation, the way that organisms regulate their body temperatures in response to the environment. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here today. You study thermoregulation, which is how organisms regulate their body temperature. But why is thermoregulation important for animals? It's simple chemistry, you know, that um, chemical reactions simply proceed faster the warmer, the warmer the system is or the warmer the body is. And living systems consist of, of chemical reactions, biochemistry, so that being at the right temperature is absolutely important for proper functioning of bodies or, or organisms. You talk about how being at the right temperature is critical for organisms. What are the different mechanisms by which organisms regulate their temperature? Broadly speaking, I suppose animals, or, or you know, at least larger animals, have, have two options. Either to try to maintain their internal environment constant, even though the external environment may fluctuate. And that's what humans do. So our body temperature is always constant, and despite vast fluctuations in our environment. The other approach is let the body temperature fluctuate with the environment and then compensate for that temperature effect at a more cellular biochemical level and for example a lot of fish would have that approach and then you find anything in between. With such varied strategies for thermoregulation it seems that it would have a significant effect on the lifestyle different animals could have. What has driven the evolution of these strategies and how has this changed how and where animals live? With animals moving from, from the oceans onto land, that's really where a lot of the evolution of thermoregulation happened because the oceans are such a stable environment, so the opportunity to exploit different habitats just simply didn't exist. But with moving on land, when there was such a um, variety of different um, thermal habitats, that's when animals started exploiting different habitats behaviourally and, and started regulating their internal body temperature. Later in evolution, um, there was a development of producing heat internally and that led to, to what's called endothermy in birds and mammals. And that of course allowed animals then to be much more decoupled from their actual environment and be active in much colder temperatures such as polar regions or, or, or cold temperate regions so that the heat produced from within kept the body warm despite the extremely cold conditions without. With the variety of environments and conditions that animals can live in, how do you get at the underlying mechanisms that allow them to be so adaptable? Has technology played an important role in asking new questions? Changes in technology, how they've changed in the last 10 and 20 years, have affected me a lot. But um, that also has then led to learning a lot more how animals function, because I always think that we'll try to categorize animals into behavior or ecology or molecular biology, but if you're an animal, everything happens at the same time. So you also have to look at it all at the same time to understand the whole animal. And I think that's the exciting part about biology and thermal biology in particular. You mentioned how challenging it can be to maintain an integrated perspective on the animals that you are studying. How does this challenge relate to the big questions facing your field right now? That's um, that's quite a difficult question because there's so many facets to it. But I think and there, there are two main areas, I suppose. Climate change is an obvious one. And what we need to find out is, is how can animals respond to rapid change in climate and how well equipped are they to, to compensate for changes in their environment. So that's a more management-orientated issue. But 
a big question in, in the science is, and, and I hinted at that before, is to, to connect what happens at the level of DNA and RNA and the molecules and how that influences whole animal function and behaviour and ecology. And I think that is a real challenge. And, and we're only able to do that now um, with the technology that's available now. And I think that, as I said before, is the really exciting field. And that's the biggest challenge now, I think, to, to find out what the underlying mechanisms are that produce the patterns we see in animals, um, in our environment, in our surroundings. Climate change is a big topic now. And you talked about how understanding animals' response to temperature change is an important question in your field. How can the study of thermoregulation help us to better understand animals' response to future climate change? Yeah, it's, it's interesting and I, I think it's, it's um, important to remember that most animals have evolved with a lot of climate change as a backdrop because throughout geological time climate, climate has changed a lot, very, very massive changes. So that a lot of animals are actually quite plastic or quite flexible in what climates they can live. And a good example are Antarctic fish that currently live in very stable temperatures at about minus 1.8 to minus 0.5 of a degree Celsius. But nonetheless, they have retained the capacity to live in much warmer temperatures. And I think it's that capacity for flexibility or plasticity, as we call it, that will really um, dictate how well animals will do with climate change. And that's what we really have to learn about. You talked about how individual organisms have evolved through large fluctuations in the climate and how this has made them capable of experiencing large changes without an effect. But is the same true for whole ecosystems? Will ecosystems be plastic to change, or will interactions between organisms be affected in ways that we don't necessarily understand? Look, that's a really good point. And I mean, coming back to an earlier question, I mean, that is one of the big challenges now also to determine how animals interact with one another, such as predator-prey relationships, for example. So, um, yes, different species can respond quite differently to changing climate. So even though a predator may not be affected, if its prey species is negatively affected, then there will be a flow-on effect or a secondary effect. And, and the other thing is, of course, that a lot of animals will have require more energy the warmer they are. So then there's also a much larger food requirement for a lot of animals which, which may unbalance ecological relationships. Yes, that's a good question, and that's certainly one that, that will require a lot more research effort. And that was Jesse Silverman bringing you the forecast for plants and animals inhabiting this rapidly warming planet. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now from Antarctica to America, the heartland of the creation-evolution debate which reached fever pitch in 2005 with the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial in Pennsylvania, where it was debated for the first time whether schools be allowed to teach intelligent design, not evolution, as an explanation for the origin of life. Alex Jordan will revisit this debate with a report on a controversy surrounding tenure of an intelligent design supporter in the science faculty of a U.S. university and what ramifications this has for evolutionary debate worldwide. Most of us are probably familiar with the ongoing debate between a scientific community and the creationist or intelligent design supporters. The intelligent design movement 
asserts that some biological systems are too complex to have arisen by the process of natural selection and must therefore have been created by a sentient being. This debate was reinvigorated by a US scientist by the name of Michael Behe. Behe's main idea is that of irreducible complexity, or the idea that a complex system functions only if all its parts are present and working. Should any part of the system be removed, he argues, the system will cease to function entirely. He gives an example of a mousetrap, which, with half its parts missing, does not function half as well as a complete trap, rather it does not function at all. Behe then goes on to apply this logic to biological systems. Specifically, Behe argues that certain biochemical reactions within the cell are too complex to have arisen through the process of natural selection. And if we stop there for a moment, we can see that in itself this is a sound hypothesis. There are systems that display this property of irreducible complexity, and it is of course possible that they arose from some other pathway besides natural selection. But Behe has sparked controversy by going one step further and claiming that, because he thinks evolution cannot account for these complex systems, they must have been made by an intelligent designer. The reason Behe's claims are getting so much attention also has to do with the fact that evolutionary processes are both widely misunderstood by the general public and extremely difficult to demonstrate. The reason Behe's claims are getting so much attention also has to do with the fact that evolutionary processes are both widely misunderstood by the general public and extremely difficult to demonstrate in succinct experiments. Whereas the theory of gravity, probably about as widely accepted in the scientific community as evolution, is easily demonstrated by dropping an apple and seeing that it falls down rather than up, evolution cannot so easily be shown. This leaves a lot of room for anti-evolutionists to sell certain ideas and concepts to the public without much supporting evidence, and makes it hard for scientists to refute these by demonstrating evolution in a way that is palatable for the general public. Furthermore, when someone like Behe comes along, a working biochemist employed as a professor at a decent university, it sounds very much like he would be well placed to offer reasonable criticism on evolutionary theories. And if we listen to Behe's own opinion of his work, as a member of the public might, it sounds like a closed case. He describes his own work as being, and I quote, so significant that it must be ranked as one of the greatest achievements in the history of science, rivaling those of Newton and Einstein, Lavoisier and Schrodinger, Pasteur and Darwin. It may come as a surprise then that Behe's own science faculty at Lehigh University has published a notice on its website saying that Behe's work has no basis in science, has not been tested experimentally, and should not be regarded as scientific. So what is happening here? Is this just a case of academic arrogance? Are the evolutionary biologists scared by what Behe has to say, and are they trying to silence him? Behe claims that his arguments are founded in science, but the problem with arguments of the type Behe presents is that they do not generate any predictions. Faith-based approaches do not fit into the scientific framework with its emphasis on independent, concrete data. You can't present intelligent design arguments by saying that if their hypotheses are correct, then you expect so-and-so will happen. Rather, intelligent design type debates use negative inference, arguing that if there are data evolutionary theory can't explain, then this lack of data is support for intelligent design. This is exactly the problem members of the scientific community have with Behe's work and is the main reason he has been subject to widespread ostracism. 
Behe has never been able to publish his hypotheses in scientific journals because without any data to support them, they never survive the peer review process. On his own website, Behe lists only a single scientific paper that he has authored, and this is not in any way concerned with intelligent design or irreducible complexity. Behe's apparent science is only published as opinion pieces, but the public may have difficulty telling the difference. The leap of logic Behe makes in going from irreducibly complex systems straight to intelligent design may seem a tempting conclusion, and this may go some way in explaining why so many Americans don't believe in evolution. Fortunately for science, Behe's claims and the ensuing debates have been dealt with repeatedly by judges in the US law courts. When Behe has pitted his wits against science in debates, such as the well-publicized Dover trial or the more recent California creation case, his arguments have been shown to fall apart very rapidly. After hearing Behe's own testimony in support of intelligent design being taught in schools, the Californian judge ruled that Behe's own statement that, and I quote, it is personally abusive and damaging to de facto require students to subscribe to an idea that violates their personal integrity, end quote, was actually evidence for the argument he was supposed to be opposing, because in the creationist textbook he was defending, it was claimed that, if scientific conclusions contradict the word of God, the conclusions are wrong, no matter how many scientific facts appear to back them. Now this position obviously violates Behe's own claims that no student should be forced to accept anything, and also his basic position as someone who supports scientific values. Needless to say, the teaching of intelligent design as a valid scientific theory in schools was once again rejected, and it also shows that Professor Behe probably won't spell the end of evolutionary theory just yet. I don't think we'll need to wait too long until the next round comes along though. And that was Alex Jordan with the latest from the trenches of the creation-evolution war. Now Alex, I'm interested in your comment about Behe making a leap of faith from irreducible complexity to a supreme creator, divine creator rather. Mm -hmm. Now, I do feel that science is certainly not immune to these leaps of faith and that researchers often will make, um, will draw conclusions from their research that may not be completely well-founded. Well, yeah, I think that that definitely can happen. Um, a lot of the time researchers extend their conclusions beyond what the data really is telling them. Um, I guess the difference between the scientific approach and this, uh, this faith-based approach is that as more it comes to light in the scientific process, researchers are forced to reevaluate their position, which doesn't happen in the faith-based approaches because uh, these, these approaches don't rely on, on data or evidence. Um, and so, yeah, while scientists can uh, overextend themselves, science as a process generally uh, reels them back in um, not, not long after they've done so. Now, Alex, do you have any comment on the fact that evolution is so hard to test empirically, given that it happens over such an enormous time scale? Well, yeah, I think it, there's, a, there's a great difficulty in testing evolution as a whole process. You know, you can't prove um, what's happened in the past. You can only do experiments now and show that they work. And so while you can't test whether evolution has created life on Earth as we know it, you can test the predictions that arise from the theory. Um, and so things like um, 
testing whether or not a bacterial population will develop a resistance to a new stimulus, um, perhaps an antibiotic or ethanol in the environment. And those sorts of experiments do get done and they, they lend support to the theory of evolution. Um, so yes, you can, you can prove that the processes by which evolution is thought to occur in fact do occur. Um, it is difficult to, to show that unequivocally um, evolution has accounted for life as we know it. Right, so although the evolution creation debate's not over yet, the evolution camp does have more data to back its claims than the creation camp. I think so, yes. A man named Darwin had a revelation. He said our life evolved from the confusion. He had a theory. It made some people nervous when he came to the embarrassing conclusion. We come from monkeys. We're not so special. We've only got a little extra DNA. The chimpanzees are very close to us. I'll scream up to the cuss. He's not so far away. We come from monkeys swinging in the trees. A little bit of monkey inside you and me. A monkey in the middle. A monkey on your back. It's a fundamental problem, but a scientific fact. We come from monkeys. Minded, said creation was the answer They got upset, then those got out of joint They say we're missing the monkey in the middle They're picking it, it kinda proves a point You're not so hairy, you haven't got a tail You're not adapted for living in a tree But if you care to count up all your chromosomes You're 98.4% a chimpanzee We come from monkeys swinging in the trees A little bit of monkey inside you and me Monkey in the middle, a monkey on your back. It's a fundamental problem, but a scientific fact. We come from monkey. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Alex Jordan and Jesse Silverman. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network. I'm Carla Avolio. Please join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Monkey bars, feel the primal beat. Six million years we've been walking on our feet. A barrel full of monkeys swinging from the family tree. We don't want to start a social revolution. We just want to talk about some monkey evolution. But the knuckle dragon stool flinging fools just don't want to see. We come from monkeys. You might just call it intelligent design But if the universe keeps on evolving Then maybe you should just evolve a bigger mind 
We come from monkeys swinging in the trees A little bit of monkey inside you and me A monkey in the middle, a monkey on your back It's a fundamental problem but a scientific fact We come from monkeys Monkey see, monkey do Monkey see, monkey do Monkey see, monkey do Monkey me, monkey you Let's all face it, it's all true We come from monkeys